Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Slowing growth, rising inflation, and Putin's war in Ukraine takes a new dark turn. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Once again, we all spent a good part of the week focused on the war in Ukraine with the beginning of what looked to be a major battle for the Donbass. And people like former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta saying the key is doubling down on the economic sanctions. I think the most important thing for the United States right now is to remain united with our NATO allies, to continue to put pressure on the sanctions and try to squeeze them and enforce them. Even as President Putin claimed that those economic sanctions weren't working. We can now confidently say that such policy of sanctions towards Russia has failed. The economic blitzkrieg strategy didn't work. And when we weren't watching video from Ukraine, some of us may have been watching Netflix, but as it turns out, not nearly enough of us. 
Let's take a look at this. They are looking at first quarter streaming paid net change. Wow, negative 200,000. That wow. was for estimates of being up two and a half million. That is a big decline here. Leading co-CEO Reed Hastings to throw out some alternatives, like, for example, putting some ads in our Netflix feed. I'm a bigger fan of consumer choice and allowing consumers who would like to have a lower price and are advertising tolerant to get what they want makes a lot of sense. Washington spent the week hosting economic officials from all around the world for the World Bank IMF meetings with the recurrent theme of less growth, as summarized by the IMF chief economist. Compared to our January forecast, we have revised our projection for global growth downwards to 3.6% in both 2022 and 2023. Even as Fed official after Fed official said that the priority had to be inflation, which means raising the rates. We're really going to be raising rates and getting expeditiously to levels that are more neutral and then that are actually tight, tightening policy, if that turns out to be appropriate once we get there. And the markets, well, the markets were listening to Chair Pollock, at least this time, particularly the equity markets, with the Nasdaq down a whopping 3.8% for the week, pointing toward what could be the worst month for the tech-heavy index since Lehman collapsed back in 2008, while the S&P 500 was down 2.75%. And the yield on the 10-year Treasury, well, it just kept on climbing, ending the week over 2.9%. For their thoughts on what the markets were reacting to, welcome now Barbara Ann Bernard, she's founder and CEO of Windcrest Capital, and Rick Reeder, BlackRock CIO of Global Fixed Income and head of its global allocation team. So, Rick, I'll start with you. I mean, I'm not the professional you are, but it doesn't look like the markets were very happy this week, if I can put it that way. No, I mean, it, boy, it was, uh, it got a dose of tightening financial conditions in an aggressive way. I mean, when, uh, when Chair Powell talks about Volcker and being aggressive on inflation, and consequently the idea you're going to tighten financial conditions, that is an environment where the bond market and the equity market don't, uh, don't don't do particularly well. So you saw that play out in a pretty extraordinary way. I mean, not just where the market's soft. You know, the thing, there were a couple of things that were interesting. One, it was the bond market that was leading the equity market. The equity market was amazingly resilient until the last couple of days. And it was almost like the note, the memo got through that, gosh, we're tightening financial conditions. Rates have moved significantly higher than the equity market turned down. But you know, it's a market ripe with uh, uncertainty, lack of conviction, and you're seeing that play through. So, so Barbara, Ann, is this a matter of the equity markets just finally catching up with the bond markets and saying, oh, you know what, we are going to tighten? I think so. You know, in our industry, there's the whole mantra, don't fight the Fed, and I don't think you should here. They've been very clear that the narrative is no longer transitory, that they are going to front load hikes, and that's what the market is finally pricing in. And, you know, it's very interesting because while Jerome Powell can crush the cyclical parts of the economy that he can control, I worry about what's he going to do about the sources of inflation that he can't control. Well, that's a really good question. Uh, for example, supply chain, right, Barbara Ann? Correct. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, there is no interest rate that can solve the inflationary effects of deglobalization. And effectively, over the last three decades, we've had minimal geopolitical risk. And that's encouraged managements to outsource and offshore, and that was great for margins and shareholder returns. But just in time has become just in case in the, now that we have a pandemic and a war. And those efficient supply chains are now coming across as very vulnerable and fragile in the face of exogenous shocks. And so what I fear that there is no rate of, of interest rate that can fix that, and there is no quick fix to that which is why I believe inflation will be here for longer than the market is anticipating. 
So, Rick, what should the realistic target for the Fed be at this point? I mean, they, you always talked about 2%. We're way past 2%. I don't think we're going to get back there anytime soon. What's a realistic target? So, you know, it's a question of how much the Fed feels like they need to get, they need to get into tightening, as, as Chair Powell would, uh, has described. The thing that is ironic about this period of tightening is you're starting to see cracks in the system in terms of the economy starting to moderate. In a, in a pretty significant way. In, uh, in You're seeing that in some of the consumption data, you're seeing that in some of the corporate data. And so it's a tricky time. I mean, it's so listen, I think the Fed is going to overshoot and try and, uh, and try and bring down inflation. I think what Barbara said is right. You've got, you know, when you, when you talk about the shocked effect on food from the Ukrainian dynamic, when you talk about the shocked effect that's also had on energy, we talk about supply chain, you talk about China, locked down now and creating an exacerbation of the supply chain issues. These are tricky things for the Fed to deal with. So Rick Reeder and Barbara Ann Bernard will be staying with us. We're going to focus on the consumer, so much of our economy, and whether it can save us from the hard landing that many are fearing right now. It's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. And the country's trade balance, which has been delivering its own brand of bad news for many a month, somersaulted in February and recorded the biggest one-month surplus in American history. Part of the reason was that importers had been stockpiling oil the previous month in advance of the imposition of President Ford's new tariff. Oil imports in February thus declined to the lowest level since the 1973 embargo. But still, there was no arguing with a $900 million surplus, and a lot of European speculators decided that it was time to start accumulating dollars instead of other currencies. That was Louis Rukeyser on Wall Street Week back in 1975. And in fairness, Mr. Rukeyser, yes, some of us did wear our hair that way back in 1975. It was a very different era when the United States actually ran a trade surplus for that month instead of the $90 billion monthly deficit that we're running now. Still with us are Rick Reeder of BlackRock and Barbara Ann Bernard of Windcrest Capital. So, Barbara Ann, let me come to you specifically on the consumer because it's so much uh, at the heart of our economy. We talked this week with uh, the chair and CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, who said he's looking at the consumer from where he sits. He has a lot of access in the consumer data. He says it's really very strong, and that will take us through the, the tightening that we're looking forward from the Fed. Do you agree? So I think what Brian was talking about was what he was seeing currently. And this week, the market got excited about housing starts. Um, I think those are, are lagging indicators, and you can't create alpha if you're driving with the rearview mirror. If you look at how sales, to me, that's far more indicative of what is going on. And the S&P Home Builder Index wouldn't be down 28% this year if we didn't have a problem. National home sales have been down in three of the four last months. So the consumer is not feeling as good as they did this time last year. And if we just want to look at sales and retail sales, 2021 is an uncomparable year. That was peak sales for peak sales, peak retail sales. Um, retail sales were up 17.2% in 2021. So every company is facing really tough comps. And I think the street is extrapolating the strength of the consumer in 2021, and it's not going to happen. So I look at companies that look mm -hmm. like they're on 10 times earnings, but on a normalized earnings number, they're more like 30 times. And I can give you multiple examples of that. So just tactically right now, given where estimates are, we are very short discretionary consumer. 
So, so give us a couple of examples. What do you run toward in that world, Barbara, and what do you run away from? Okay, so let's look at Tesla. They had a great, uh, really great quarter this week. And I would say that's a big one good. They've got purchasing power, but that to me is not indicative of what's going on in the auto market. If you look at a CarMax or a Carvana or an auto leaf this morning, they've had a terrible time. And so you look at something like CarMax and 50% of their profits are from auto sales. So that's a function of commission and volume. Last year, they sold 11.7 million cars. In the great financial crisis, they sold nine and a half. A normalized number is 10 and a half. So I don't think they're going to do 11.7 million car sales this year. The other 50% of their earnings are from financing. And that's a function of spreads and loan loss provisions, both of which are below a normalized number. So on my math, the Car um, CarMax was over earning by 10% on the top line. And it was over earning by 20% in finance. And so that's 30% um, over earning. So on an EPS of $5 and in um, a 15 times multiple, I get a 75 target and the stock's at 90 today. So this is what I mean about uncomparable comps and unrealistic expectations. So, so Rick, where are you on the consumer right now? Because it's so important. I mean, when we talk to people like Secretary Yellen, she points to the strength in the job market. Is that going to get us through? So I think it's more complex. I think what Barbara said around the housing market, housing markets, it's going through a stagflationary dynamic. There's an affordability problem that is that is profound. You're seeing mortgage applications drop as a result of that. Home builders, as, as she was saying, is definitely down. D d completely agree with that. I think the uh, you're going to see consumption slowing. You are seeing that because of this dynamic around where fuel prices are, where food prices are. So you are seeing some pullback from the consumer. But I think it's much more complex around, I mean, I, quite frankly, my career, I've never seen a consumer more loaded loaded for bear than they are than they are today. Just to give you some of the stats, I mean, there's two and a half trillion of savings that the consumer still has. Uh, we track this number really closely. Two and a half trillion is still of savings from the fiscal stimulus. You also, as you said, you have a job market that is, uh, that is arguably white hot. And, you know, consumers tend to spend based on their, their and you're seeing, by the way, the quits rate. Is really high, and that's when the when the uh, when individuals are confident in their job prospects, and and the and the consumer has delevered. And actually, looked at something today that for the first time in 30 years, cash on hand is higher than debt for consumers. That is a pretty extraordinary. That's generational change. So I think I think Barbara is right around the consumer can wait and be patient. And when it sees prices that are extremely high, and you compare them to where they were, what consumption was last year before these prices were high. I do think you'll see some pullback of that, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty far from this as a recession, a recessionary construct when you've got this sort of firepower. By the way, sitting on corporate balance sheets as well, you've got that sort of firepower. So I'm a bit more enthusiastic about the consumer can be in good shape and be supportive, but but agree with the fact they can be patient and pull back when when you see the prices of food escalate so quickly, which they will continue to do. Barbara, is the household balance sheet going to protect us from a recession? I hear what Rick's saying, but when you look at that two and a half trillion and you just look at just what rates have done on a 30 year mortgage for the average new homeowner, um, the average uh, mortgage expense is $500 more per month. That's $6,000 a year. You add that to higher gas prices, higher rent, higher food, and you can see how you can blow through that two and a half trillion in extra savings pretty quickly. Um, so um, I, I just, you know, I, Rick, I, I agree that you know consumers in better shape than perhaps they were um, when they had more debt. But I also think the cost of living is just so much higher today that when 
real weekly average earnings are down and retail sales are down, right? That combination of lower spending and lower earnings over the last 60 years has always meant you're heading into a recession. And that's where we are. Both of those figures are negative. For average weekly earnings, the number's down negative 3.3% year on year, and retail sales are now negative 1.6% year on year. So that tells you the consumer isn't feeling healthy. And in addition to that, they no longer have those stimulus checks. Um, So does the consumer have more money? No, I don't think they do. Um, It's not incoming anyway. Thanks so much to Barbara Ann Bernard of Windcrest Capital, and to, of course, Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Coming up, we thought we were on a track towards zero emissions, but has the war in Ukraine derailed us? We talk with Ann Finucane of Bank of America. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. What a difference a war makes. President Biden started his tenure pledging to cut back on the use of fossil fuels. If we act to save the planet, we can create millions of jobs and economic growth and opportunity to raise the standard of living amongst everyone around the world. But that was before a resurgent global economy and the war in Ukraine sent the price of oil and of gas at the pump skyrocketing. I'm doing everything I can to bring down the price to address prudence price hike. That's why I authorized the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months from our strategic petroleum reserve. So what about all those concerns about the effect of fossil fuels on climate? Did one war in Ukraine undo all those best laid plans? Well, at least one energy industry participant, Anglo-American CEO Mark Kudafani, says it's only a temporary setback. 
the transition to renewables and green energy is going to stall for a short period of time, and then it's going to race like So I think there's a negative consequence on renewables in the very short term, but long term, everyone's going to push hard to get their renewable strategies in place. And to give us a broader perspective on how the war in Ukraine may or may not be affecting the quest to get to zero emissions, welcome now Anne Finucane. She is the chair of Bank of America Europe and for many years has been something of a pioneer, I must say, in ESG. Anne, great to have you back with us on Wall Street Week. Thank you for being here. Uh, first of all, give us a sense uh, of the extent to which this war may have either suspended or at least prolonged some of the fight on climate. Well, thanks for having me, David. And I have to say, I do agree with Mr. Kutufani in terms of the short-term problem. If uh, Russia accounts for about 40% of Europe's natural gas imports, obviously, and they've now committed that uh, by the end of the year, they'll have cut those by two-thirds. We're going to have a scramble. You've seen what the U.S. is willing to do in terms of shipments, et cetera, uh, to the EU. So we're going to have a short-term problem on fossil fuels and the use of gas, oil, and I think actually an uptick in the use of coal. However, it's really laid bare this issue of over-dependence on fossil fuels, the indisputable science of the International Panel on Climate Change that says, if you thought it was bad, it turns out it's worse in terms of uh, climate change. We're not nearly on track to uh, keep to this 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, temperature rise by the end of the century. So we've got a problem in that the science says we're not getting there. We're too heavily dependent on fossil fuels, and fossil fuels are, as it turns out, kind of dicey at the moment in terms of uh, ability to even get them. So I think that you're going to see, and we are seeing just in our own businesses, a focus on renewables as a risk mitigant and obviously a risk mitigant against the, uh, the climate issues at the same time, but a risk mitigant against being so dependent on uh, other nations that we may be at war at with at any given point. Well, well you mentioned, Anne, uh, the goals that we all have to keep it to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And we've got a lot of fairly ambitious targets being set by various countries, including the United States, including President Biden, as well as by corporations. Before the war in Ukraine happened, were we on track to meet those uh, commitments? Uh, maybe not, but we were close. So the commitments were that uh, you had about 90 percent of uh, the global GDP that was committed to net zero. Most of them felt that they would make it. Now, this is countries and companies, shall we say, were on route to make it by 2050, maybe 2060. But that was a reach. Now what we're dealing with is uh, we've got a little bit of a setback, and I think there are bigger issues at play, which is where's the money? Yeah. And that just hasn't been accounted for. And when I say where is the money, it has been estimated out of COP26, uh, the UN climate conference, out of COP26, that we would need 4 to $5 trillion a year, so annually, for the next decade, maybe 30 years. So at least 10 more likely 30 years, to ameliorate this problem. And where is the money? So that's the really issue at the moment, to just be very practical about it. You could uh, roll up all the governments and all the philanthropy in the world, and if you don't put capital markets into this, it's not happening. And we don't have that synergy between capital markets and government the way we have when we have had 
enormous problems in the past. So armaments during World War II, uh, even COVID, to, to be able to make and distribute the vaccines that were needed globally, you needed this composition of companies and governments to come together. And I think that's what's needed here. As I say, I think it's a fascinating alternative to some of those off- offsets to really use the capital markets. Thank you so much for bringing it to us. That's Ann Finucane of Bank of America. Coming up, Secretary Janet Yellen's thoughts on China, inflation, and the world economic order. And Steve Ratner of Will Advisors for his reactions. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The Fed is concerned about inflation. They've made clear that they will be removing accommodation to try to get it under control. But um, I know they'll try to achieve a soft landing and um, with some skill and some luck, um, we'll, we'll have a very good year for the U.S. economy in terms of the job market this coming year. That, of course, was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen talking to us at the very end of the week after those IMF and World Bank meetings in Washington. To go through what the secretary had to say to us, we welcome now Steve Ratner. He's chairman and CEO of Will Advisors, which invests the personal and philanthropic funds of Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of our parent company. So thank you so much for being back on Wall Street Week. Let's start with what we just heard from Janet Yellen. With some luck and some skill, we can get to what they call a soft landing. It's the thing that's replaced Goldilocks, I guess, in what we say every single day here. Uh, Square something up for me. How strong is the consumer? How strong is the household balance sheet? Is that enough to get us through the tightening we're looking at? The consumer and the household balance sheets are still exceptionally strong. There's still over $2 trillion, I believe, at last count of so-called excess savings above historic trends in the hands of households, roughly half from stimulus and other kinds of government assistance and roughly half from money they couldn't spend during the pandemic. And that will, that will certainly forestall a recession for a good while. I'm not at all in the camp of those who think that a recession is likely this year or probably even the second half, or first half rather, of next year. But at some point, it becomes anybody's guess whether we'll get through this without a recession. Well, anybody's guess, but square one thing for me, if you could, Steve. Uh, we have a lot of economists. We surveyed 72 economists here at, at Bloomberg that say after two years out or so, it looks like there really is a significant, not not certain, but a significant chance. We also had Bank of America survey fund managers who say that's really a big concern of theirs. Why are they worried about it? Because there's really, as Larry Summers has pointed out repeatedly on your show and elsewhere, uh, history is not on the side of a soft landing. There's really no precedent for bringing an economy this overheated with inflation, whether it's transitory, permanent or whatever, running at this rate down to anything that looks like 2% without there being a recession. It would require the skill of of, uh, the most experienced pilot in the world to achieve that that kind of a soft landing. You have to really cool off demand. You have to unfortunately raise the unemployment rate, get some slack into the labor market, and that's a level of precision that uh, economics is sort of a science, but it's not that kind of a science. Uh, so obviously the Fed has in its mandate uh, price stability, and so it's sort of its primary responsibility of addressing the inflation that people are concerned about. A- at the same time, it's not necessarily all alone. There are other things that can be done. One of the th- other things I asked Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, about was why there weren't other things, such as relieving some of the tariffs, the so-called Trump tariffs. This is what she said about that. I think gas prices peaked and have now come down some uh, from their peak 
we're working very diligently on supply chain issues to get our ports working better. We're re-examining carefully our trade strategy with respect to China. And, um, you know, I think we, it's worth considering. We certainly want to do what we can to address inflation. So worth considering is, is what she said, Steve. I'm sure you saw that Peterson Institute report that came out this week that said if you took away those so-called Trump tariffs, it would reduce inflation as much as 1.3 percent. And that would not necessarily lead to a recession. So why aren't we doing it? Because there are politics involved in all these kinds of things. And I shouldn't even demean it by saying politics. There are multiple considerations involved in all these things. We have a complicated bill. And I'm here to say they shouldn't uh, eliminate the tariffs. I think probably they should. But we do have a complicated relationship with China. There are many issues on the table. Maybe they weren't put in place in the most thoughtful way, but we do have a trade issue with China. So you could make an argument. But look, the administration is also doing things that actually increase the inflation problem. I think Larry has also pointed out on the show, but certainly other people have pointed out, that extending the moratorium on student uh, debt repayments, however meritorious and humane that may be on other re for other reasons, does simply increase demand and therefore increases inflation as well. So th there are always multiple, multiple considerations in all these decisions. But look, fundamentally, everything that Secretary Yellen said is very much at the margin. The core of the problem is that we have an overheated economy. The Fed went way too far. The fiscal policy went way too far. We're talking about trillions of dollars of excess fiscal policy, trillions of dollars of excess monetary stimulus. Tweaking uh, a few tariffs here or there is not going to make up for the mistakes that have been made so far. Uh, Steve, one of the other things that Secretary Yellen has talked about is making some changes in the entire international system by which we control the global economy, so-called Bretton Woods, the, both the agreements and the institutions. I asked her whether she really wanted to make some fundamental changes or whether it was more tweaking around the edges. This is part of what she said. The world has changed in very significant ways, and I think that does require a rethink of the organization and some of the specific mandates uh, that we give the IMF, the World Bank, and the WTO. So, Steve, how fundamentally should we be looking at these institutions? It is a very different world, not least because we have China now, uh, a close second, uh, increasing, increasing and perhaps taking over the United States in terms of a dominant position in the world, and it has a very different way of regulating its economy. Do we need to take a fresh look at things like the IMF? Sure, it would be great. We're talking about, what, almost 75 years, almost exactly 75 years, I guess, since Bretton Woods and since all this was put in place. And so, for example, the IMF was created in part to help stabilize exchange rates in what everybody thought was going to be a fixed exchange rate world. Well, in August of 1971, all that changed, and we're obviously in a completely different exchange rate environment. And so there's absolutely no question that re taking another look, whether it's a deep uh, restructuring or some more modest changes in both of those organizations, be, would be a good thing. I'm just not sure where you rank that in the list of priorities of things we have to deal with and the likelihood of getting international cooperation, especially from the Chinese, on some kind of dramatic uh, rethinking of those two organizations. But she's honestly, uh, you can't argue with her logic and her points on that. Yeah, I want to pick about that, the likelihood of getting it done that you just mentioned, because it's also a different world than it was after World War II, at least what I read about it. The, the United States was really in a very dominant position globally uh, and could really not, not perhaps have its way, but really had a large influence. It would be a very different matter today, in part because of China, as you suggest, but in general, it's a more uh, evenly distributed world. 
Oh, you're completely right about that. Uh, I should have said that myself. But if you go back to Bretton Woods, essentially Britain was kind of, well, well, not exactly China, but Britain was trying to maintain its preeminence in the world financial order and have, a, a, if not a seat at the head of the table, at least right next to the head of the table. But it had no ability to actually uh, enforce that or implement that. And so you know, amidst torturous negotiations uh, uh, led by Harry Dexter White, we eventually basically said it's going to be our way or the highway. And we got our way. Uh, you're absolutely right. We can't do that with respect to China or a number of other players in this world. And so it would have to be a far more consensual and therefore more difficult and therefore more improbable negotiation. Also, you know, Bretton Woods was essentially, uh, it was you know like the old phrase, don't let a crisis go to waste. We had to do something at the end of World War II in terms of how the international monetary uh, and economic order would work. There's not quite that same pressure today. So this, I think most people would look at as a nice to have, not a must have, and that also makes it a lot harder to get it done. Thank you so much, Steve Ratner, Bullet Advisors, for being with us today. Finally, one more thought. Swipe right, swipe left, meets the world of global finance. The power and the mischief of social media brings a host of possibilities to mind, from the romance of Tinder to the envy our many so-called friends elicit with their carefully manicured Instagram posts of their beautiful lives. But what happens when the power of instant global posts meets financial markets? Well, one thing is the bald guy also known as the chief economist of the Institute of International Finance. Dr. Robin Brooks has become a social media heartthrob. Well, at least in Brazil he has, where his analysis of the real, and in particular his conclusion that it is greatly undervalued, has garnered him a devoted social media following for his every tweet. I think my favorite quote in this story was from his kids when he said, a meme that's just my stupid dad. The stupid dad is crushing it in economics. Now, the Brooks followers are unquestionably loyal. But they are only 150,000 strong, which doesn't begin to compete with Mr. Elon Musk's 82.4 million followers, which has gotten him in trouble with the SEC in the past when he talked about things he should not have been talking about, things that moved the market for Tesla stock and got him put in the securities law penalty box. When you sign an agreement with the Securities and Exchange Commission with the blessing of a federal judge, I just think you've got to be held to the deal you struck, man. Well, not to be deterred, Elon Musk has now decided he wants to buy the entire Twitter company. Or at least he says he does, though he does admit it might not all work out. I do think this will be somewhat painful, and I'm not sure that I will actually be able to, to acquire it. And how is Mr. Musk conducting his campaign for a hostile takeover? You guessed it by way of Twitter. You know, what happens when the world's richest man tweets you at your workplace at a, at a relatively small science magazine? I mean, imagine how that would feel. That was Bloomberg's Conrad Quilty Harper, who in a prior life was on the management team of a small digital publication when Elon Musk used Twitter to explore buying the company. In the end, that one didn't work out, but it did cause a fair amount of excitement and yes, consternation along the way. And as one of the few who have actually experienced a Musk Twitter overture, Conrad has some advice for people like Twitter. You have to take the medium of humor seriously, I think, in this kind of ball game. So, Twitter, good luck with that serious sense of humor. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.